What's up, everyone? Yavitsa Djurjevic here, and we've got a great episode lined up for you guys today. So today's guest is Dr. Timothy Clark, and he is the author of the upcoming book, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. And I've got to say, this was probably one of my more favorite conversations I've had in the last year and a half, just because I think the topic is so relevant to our conversation today, specifically when we look at talking about millennials and helping young people achieve in the workplace and just in communities in general. So I really enjoyed the conversation. I think you guys will find a lot of benefit in it. I've added the link to the pre-sale for his book in the comments below. So whether you're on the website or iTunes or Spotify or wherever it may be, just look into the details and you can click on the Amazon link to take you to his book as well as to his website, social media, etc. So I think you guys will enjoy it and let me know what you think. Dr. Clark, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm uh, glad you could come on. The topic we're going to dis- discuss today is really interesting. I haven't given it too much thought before we connected about doing this episode. But as I mentioned, your name is Dr. Timothy Clark, and you're the author of an upcoming book, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. So uh, give the audience listening a a 10,000 foot view of a little bit about your background, who you are, what some of your work encompasses, and why you chose to write this project. Sure. Well, first of all, Yavitsa, thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So by, by training, I'm a social scientist. I did a PhD at Oxford University, and but I did not take the academic track. I mean, I kind of did. I've been an adjunct professor, but I've spent most of my time working with practitioners in in the business world, and I run a consulting organization called Leader Factor. And probably about three years ago, I started to do a comprehensive review of the research literature in the area of psychological safety because it was so fascinating and it tied to the the graduate work, the research that I did in the area of organizational culture when I was at Oxford. So that's what got me started. And what I realized is that this area of research is something that we need to pay a lot more attention to because psychological safety, let me just give you a very basic definition. So the the basic definition is that you can interact in a social unit with other humans without feeling embarrassed or punished in some way. That's that's the basic definition. And that's great. That's helpful. It's It's a very useful construct. But as I looked at it, I said to myself, we're not all the way there. We've got more work to do because this can't be a binary proposition. It can't be that you either have it or you don't. So you're going to have some level of it. And how does this mechanism work? And so that's that's what I started digging into a couple of years ago, very, very uh, diligently and doing a lot of research with my team. That's where the book came from. Interesting. So. Talk about just, and we'll dive deep into each of the four um, stages, but what are the four stages from a just 
course, we go over there. Sure. So the four stages, so it's, it's basically the anatomy of psychological safety. So how does it work? And what I discovered is through a lot of field research that there's a consistent pattern. And the pattern is that the pattern follows basic human needs. So stage one is inclusion safety. What that means is okay. it means that you feel included or accepted by your team or the group or whatever social unit you're in. You feel accepted. You feel a part of it. They've granted joint membership to you and identity. So, hmm. so what does that satisfy? It satisfies the basic human need to belong. We long to belong as humans. So that's stage one. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because that's where we always start. If you're introduced to a new organization or social unit, what do you what do you care about? You care about being attached, belonging, being accepted, being included with that social unit. So that's always that's that's the natural stage one. Then we got a stage Does two. That, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, does that include the concept of social proof where you might not be part of a group yet, but, or, or ever become part of a group, but there is some sort of internal validation that you get from somebody else within that group to give you that inclusion? Yes. To give you that safety in it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Because it's a sociocultural thing, right? So I might be hired as the latest developer on a software team. So I'm a, I'm an employee. I've been hired. I'm officially a part of the team. It doesn't mean I have psychological safety. It doesn't mean that I've been included. Yeah, they may not like like me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I may have formal status as a member of the team, but, but, but culturally I've been excluded. I haven't crossed the threshold of inclusion to be a part of the team. And so that's the difference. Okay. So then we go to stage two. Stage two is learner safety. So this is the next natural stage. So humans, after they are accepted, there's a natural human need to learn and grow. And so this, this corresponds with that, that second stage to be able to learn and grow. So what does it mean? It means that I feel safe to learn. Well, I need to be able to ask questions. I need to be able to give and receive feedback, experiment, mm-hmm. even make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to, I'm going to need to do all of those things to engage in the learning process. So think, think about the, about the difference in inclusion. Safety means I'm included. What do I have to do? Nothing, just be human, right? Mm -hmm. So with inclusion safety, you're accepting me based on the fact that I have flesh and blood. I'm a member of the human species. That's all. So, Mm -hmm. so all I have to do is be human and not present you with harm. And, And you, and you can accept me. Now, if we get to learner safety though, there's, there's a different requirement so now I have to do stuff. I can't be passive. I have to engage in the learner in the learning process. So that exposes me to a higher level of personal risk and vulnerability. So I need to be able to engage in all of those learning activities without feeling that kind of potential embarrassment or uh, marginalization. So that's stage two, learner safety. So then we go to stage three. Stage three is contributor safety. And again, it corresponds with the next natural stage. So after I learn stuff as a human being, what do I want to do? I want to contribute based on what I've learned. I want to use what I've learned to make a difference in some kind of meaningful way. 
So this, the third stage is contributor safety. What does it mean? It means that I feel safe, that I can contribute as a full member of the team using my skills and abilities and talents, again, without the fear of the embarrassment or the marginalization. So that's stage three. Then we go to stage four. Stage four is the culminating stage. It's the ultimate stage. It's the highest level of psychological safety. We call it challenger safety. So what does that mean? Mm. Challenger safety corresponds with the, the, the final stage of human need, which is I want to challenge something. I think we need to change things in some way, and I think I have a good idea about how to make things better. So think so challenger safety naturally requires the very highest level of psychological safety because my vulnerability is now at the highest level. Think about what that takes. So it's one thing to be included. It's another to learn. It's another to contribute. But now we're talking about challenging the way things are done, challenging the status quo. <laughs> That's not an easy thing. That's a big ask. The, the risk and the yeah, vulnerability it, are at the highest level now. Yeah. And it's, uh, as you're talking through this, I'm thinking about, you know, the example of a company, for example, if I get hired on and now I'm part of the team and if I came in day one and I said, you guys are doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you need to change this, they would immediately completely shun me from the group. <laughs> That's right. Because uh, That's I've right. got no credibility. I've, no got, credibility. I've got no social proof. Yeah. Correct. I, and, and I haven't put in any effort to show. And, and it's interesting how you broke that down into four, you know, the inclusion part, then the uh, learning. So I like that learning comes before contributing because you need to understand your environment. You need to, under, and I'm, I'm pretty sure the way I'm understanding what you're saying, the learning is not just learning technical aspects, but learning the people that are part That's of the right. group, the, the politics, the, the history, the truly making yourself part of it and then contributing, bringing something of value, value add, and then challenging because you've got something to stand on when you bring it to the table because there's a track record. Right. So there's a social exchange in all of this. With, with each level, with each stage, there's a social exchange. And as you said, if you go into your team and day one or, or, or the first week you start telling people, well, you may want to change this or do this this way or whatever. They're not going to take you seriously. They're, they have not given you participation rights. Yeah. You have to earn those. And you earn those on the basis of a track record of performance over time. And then gradually, they're going to give you those rights. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of like the the village elder or something along those lines. It's There's this there's this consistent hierarchy to create, that is created just within human interaction over and over again. Um, and, and the irony on, and it is, is, you know, you could be 40 years old and a 25 year old is telling you what to do because the 25 year old has been there three years, but you just came to this team. So this is where it gets interesting. Yavitsa, because so that we, we, we naturally as humans, as we interact and we create social norms and patterns of interacting in terms of engagement, we have to build that track record, but, but here's where it gets interesting because the millennials are now streaming into the workforce. This is a massive demographic cohort. And they they are demonstrating a norm that's a little bit different where they're coming into organizations. They want their participation rights faster and sooner. Mm. They, 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 they want to be able to challenge the status quo faster than 
the generations with whom they are working would normally grant those rights, right? So if I come into an organization and I'm a millennial and, okay, I may, I may not be able to, to jump in and challenge the status quo in the first week, but say my boss is a baby boomer, right? And mm-hmm. say uh, a, a lot of the other people on my team are Gen Ys, Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I'm, I'm a millennial and I come in and after a little while, okay, not a long time, but I want to, I want to jump in. I want to not only contribute, but I want to challenge my expectation about receiving challenger safety, which allows me to challenge is different than perhaps the people that I'm working with. And they're looking at me and they're saying, what, what are you doing? Who does man? he think he is? <laughs> what are you yeah. doing? Right. But this, and this is not isolated. We're seeing this pattern all the time. Now we do a bunch of work with tech companies in the Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. you get these, these crackerjack programmers that are coming out of school. They hit the ground running. They want to be able to challenge very quickly. So one of the questions is, is your culture prepared for that? Can you mm. accommodate that? Can you grant challenger safety to people at a much earlier stage than perhaps historically or traditionally you did. And, and, and is that important? Sure. It's important because in a hyper competitive environment, you need that you need people contributing much earlier in their, in, in, in a career stage, you need them to weigh in. You need them to be able to do that. So you need to create this ecosystem of, of bravery that allows people to do that earlier than we've done it in the past. So why do you why do you think millennials react that way though? What is it about that generation that makes them say, "Hey, I'm willing to rock the boat a lot earlier than let's say boomers?" Yeah. Well, I think I think there's a few things going on. I mean, the research tells us that the employer employee compact, that contract has changed. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's the 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 whole notion of of um of employee loyalty has changed fundamentally and who changed it well the employers changed it correct well, they can't expect the new generation to come into the workplace and say and say i, I need you know i really want i really want a, um, loyalty from you that's ridiculous so they're not going to do that so what what do they focus on they're focusing on their employability they're focusing on their personal competitive advantage mm-hmm. and so how do they do that they want to jump in they want to demonstrate value. They want to contribute to the value-creating process as soon as possible. So they value professional development and because they know that that's really the key to their competitive competitiveness and employability in the long run. And so I think that's part of it. But then the other part of it is that we have this old, the, the old paradigm of time in grade. So time mm. and grade means, you know what? I'm going to put you in this position and I'm going to have you bake for three years. Yeah, Then yeah, I'm yeah. going to take you out of the oven and then I'm going to put you in this position and we're going to get you ready. But it's a time and grade approach where we use, what are we doing? We're using time as a proxy indicator for preparation and competency and skill development. Well, that, that often doesn't make any sense at all uh, because we don't need that much time. Uh, we're, we're, we're operating in a very different world from when we use time and grade as kind of the main paradigm. 
So, I mean, the average span of competitive advantage is much shorter. And so you got to get up and you've got to be able to contribute to that, to, to, to the organization much sooner because reality demands it. So it's really, you can see the, the cultural, uh, the, the cultural norms from the past are creating the inertia that says, oh, you know what? We don't want to give you challenger safety. Yet the, the reality around the organization, the competitive environment around the organization is saying, are you kidding? We need these people to contribute as soon as possible. So give them participation rights much earlier than you used to. Well, and so what you said about time and grade, you know, the whole, let me, let me put you right here and let me let you bake. The most competent individuals in society will give you a giant middle finger to that. Not just millennials, but 50, 100, 150 years ago as well. There's a reason that within our society, the sitcom joke is the incompetent boss. Right. Okay. So your merit of being in the position you're in was not a was not based on, hey, am I the most competent individual for this job? It's like, no, I just, I just, uh, you know, played it cool and just sat here and, and twiddled my thumbs and waited until I, it was my turn. Whereas 10 people who probably would have been more qualified than that, and then that individual either went and started companies or, you know, jump ship to somewhere else. And what you said about employer loyalty, what employer loyalty? Employ, employers have zero loyalty to their employees. Exactly. So how can you expect that in return? And the answer is you can't and you shouldn't. You haven't earned it. Right. So let's go back to, to the concept that you brought up, Yavitsa, about the incompetent boss. Why is the boss incompetent? The boss is incompetent because the boss the boss has subscribed to an imperial model of leadership, which says, I'm the repository of all answers. Come to me, I'll give you the answer, and I'll dispatch you. Well, <laughs> where did that notion come from? That's from the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. So what happens is the incompetent boss is a person is an individual that never cultivated an aggressive, self-directed learning mindset. The incompetent boss is incompetent because he or she stood still. Mm, and that's yep. career suicide. That's what's happened. The, the ground moved under the incompetent boss's feet and the, and the boss didn't do anything about it. So, I mean, the universal requirement for all of us in professional life today is to demonstrate learning agility. What does that mean? That means we learn at or above the speed of change. Anything less than that, we're in trouble. Yep. So we have to demonstrate learning agility. So the incompetent boss is a, is a, is a person, an individual that, that allowed reality to pass them by, that allowed his or her skills to go into obsolescence. That's what happened. Because they had the safety of, I've been here this long. That's right. And what's so interesting is that the incompetent boss is left to hide behind title, position, and authority, which is very sad. So the incompetent boss is hiding behind those artifacts that the organization gave him or her. I have a, I have a title. I have position. I have authority. Isn't that sad? How about go demonstrate learning agility and learn how to help us as a team collaborate. That's your job. Your job is to learn with us, right? So, so you don't earn your living, you learn your living now. So they, they, they are 
they are an anachronism. They're from a different time and place. And so they don't fit in. And so how can they have credibility? They can't have credibility because they're anchored to the past. And it's, it's sad when you see that happen. Well, it's like the whole concept. I don't know if you've ever read the book, Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek. Sure. And the whole premise of that book, which everybody listening, if, you, if you've never read it, it's a great read. Go, go check it out. Is about that the primary occupation, the primary job of the leader is to sacrifice for the team in the sense that they get the they get the benefit of leadership it's it's a service model it is not a dictatorial model that's right well and but here here's here's another barrier so let's talk about that it is a service model which means that anyone who's managing or leading others should have gone through a psychological transition that allows them to do that and to be happy about doing that. Because what happens in professional life is you begin with a job and you're an individual contributor, right? Mm-hmm. And you and you have tasks and you have a tactical mindset and you've learned and you've come up in a function. You've come up in marketing or sales or finance or legal or production or whatever it is. You've come up. And and then some and then one day the organization taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, uh, so how would you like to be a manager? So here's a team. We'd like you to manage this team. When that happens, the nature of your contribution shifts from direct to indirect. Even if you become the CEO someday, you will never go through such a fundamental transformation in the way that you contribute as you do when you move from individual contributor to first-line manager. The question is, So there's a skill issue, of course. There are skills that you need to learn to be a good manager, good leader. But the the, the more fundamental question is, have you made the psychological transition so that you can contribute indirectly and be happy about that? Are you able to rejoice in the success of your people? Or do you still have a problem with that? Are you insecure? Are you resentful? Does your ego get in the way? Because once you're a leader, you either lead the way or you get in the way. It's mm. going to be one of the two. Correct. <laughs> so, so, so this is a big issue for creating psychological safety. You can see the dilemma. If a leader is, if if that individual leader has not gone through the psychological transition, how is he or she going to create psychological safety for the members of the team? That's going to be a hard thing to do. So creating psychological safety is not just a skill issue. It's a moral capability issue. Mm. You have to have the security, the internal security to allow people to challenge you, to be prepared to be wrong. And if you can't do that, you really have no business leading a team. Yeah. What are you doing leading a team? Because you're supposed to create the oil for collaboration. That's your job. The lubricating oil of collaboration is that psychological safety. You have you have one job. Your 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 primary job is to increase intellectual friction and at the same time decrease social friction. That's how we create value. We need creative abrasion. We need cr- constructive dissent. That's how we create value. That's how we make breakthroughs. That's how we innovate. Well, what, what if you can't do that emotionally and interpersonally and psychologically? You, you can't lead a team. 
Yeah. How can you lead a team? There's no way. Well, and I've I've seen people become managers based on how many hours they've put in. Not how much production has come from those hours, but how many hours they've put in at work. That that was the barometer. And then surprise, surprise, they end up being terrible managers. It's like, so you you were on an island doing everything yourself, no delegation, no nothing, and that happened to culminate to 70, 80 hour work weeks, even though the person who was working 50 hour work, work weeks was producing just as much as you because they were being efficient and using leverage, and you end up being in a leadership position. So, but, but I think, okay, so let's, let's zoom in real quick on something very important that you said, in my opinion, the ability to be able to take criticism, to be wrong is such an important part to any form of management, leadership, whatever it may be. Why is it so hard for people to accept the fact that there's a potential chance that they're wrong at something? Because that's what I see over and over again being an issue, whether it's boomers or Gen Y or whoever complaining about the millennial generation, which, fun fact, Socrates, there's quotes about Socrates complaining about the next generation. And yet, for some reason, society keeps getting better after every single generation. So either there's some perception issues here or life's getting better, everybody. Um, mm-hmm. So so what is it? what is it about the thought of like, hey, maybe my worldview might just be off in some capacity? What keeps people from being able to to accept that? I think I think it's because their identity and their status is so bound up in mm. their position, and they think their position means that they need to have the answers. Mm. They 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 believe that they are leader as oracle, and they don't get leadership. They don't get the fundamental concept of what they do for a living. Uh, because if they're so threatened uh, when others challenge them, then they, 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 they don't understand the service model and they don't understand how value is created. So let's look at innovation. You have to step back and look at innovation as a process. Innovation is, for the most part, if you look at innovation happening, it is a collaborative social process. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not a process. It's not a process where a person goes off and has a lone moment, a, a light bulb moment of lone genius. That only happens once in a while. The vast majority of, 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 of innovation happens when people get together and they are rubbing ideas against each other and there's hard hitting dialogue. That's how it happens. Mm-hmm. So if the leader understands that process, then he or she understands that they have to facilitate that process, not get in the way of that process. And they have to be open to the way that we improve. I mean, there's two kinds of innovation. There's, there's, there's incremental and derivative innovation. We call that type one. That means we take what we have and we build on it and we make small improvements. It's type one. It's incremental and, and derivative. Type two is radical and disruptive. We don't do a lot of radical and disruptive innovation. The truth is 99% of it's type one. We do some type two, but not much. So if the big harvest is type one incremental and derivative innovation, how does that get done? (laughs) Yeah. That gets done by people uh, testing ideas and challenging. And it's the intellectual friction. And so, so, so if a leader doesn't, understand that and the leader gets the leader gets defensive 
then the leader is, again, emotionally and psychologically unfit to lead. But we see this all the time because they're so, they're so, it's, it's an insecurity issue. Their identity is wrapped up in the status of their position. And they think that that means leader as expert. Hmm. In the 21st century, that model doesn't work. It's leader as learner. It's leader as facilitator. It's leader as collaborator. You, your credibility comes from, from modeling these kinds of learning and collaborative behaviors. It doesn't come from everything that you know. I mean, think about millennials. They come into an organization or a new team or whatever. Are they impressed with the pedigree of the leader with the stripes on his or her shoulder. They don't care about that. Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit because those are artifacts that the organization has given them, but, but, but they don't really care. What they care about is how can you help us today on this project? How can you help us work together? How can you help us collaborate? How can you help us make a difference? and not get in the way, but facilitate that process. If you can do that as a leader, man, you are world-class. If you can increase, again, as, as I said before, if you can increase the intellectual friction and decrease the social friction at the same time, you're world-class. Well, and it, it goes so deep within our society as well. So fair warning, I might go on a small rant. Let's, let's think about this, <laughs> our educational system. So our school system, our public school system in the United States is based on the late uh, 1700s Prussian educational system. Basically, a bunch of American intellectuals in the 1820s went to Prussia, which is uh, modern day Poland and Germany, and they wanted to copy the Prussian educational system, which was exclusively designed to create a working class. Okay, Within the Prussian educational system, it was openly... um, proclaimed that the objective was to create roughly 5% entrepreneurs, 95% factory workers. Okay. And what happened in the United States, and it started in Massachusetts, which was the first state to adapt this program. And I believe the 1830s, you went from having, um, a teaching style where everybody was together in one room, you know, a little house in a prairie type learning where mm-hmm. the teacher taught the oldest kids. So let's say the fifth graders, then the fifth graders taught the fourth graders then the fourth graders taught the third graders, third graders taught the second graders and so on. It went from that kind of a system, a collaborative learning environment to I am the king in the classroom. I am the teacher. The textbook is God. So I am the king and the textbook is, is the Bible. And the, this is the only way to learn and the only way to think. And I'm going to teach you how to train and study for a test. I'm not actually going to teach you how to collaborate. I'm not going to teach you how to think like an individual. I'm not going to teach you how to innovate. So it goes, what you're describing goes so deep into the root of it's everything so we do. And that's the problem. We don't learn how to collaborate. Now, it's really true. And one of the, one of the case studies in the book, yeah, it's a, where for stage two learner safety, so I dig into this exact issue, and one of the case studies is my my observations of uh, a gentleman by the name of Craig Smith, who is a high school calculus teacher. He is arguably the best high school calculus teacher in the country, hmm. and I had the opportunity to do observations in his room, interview 
many of his students interview him. And he, it's incredible what he does. This, his, his classroom. So he teaches calculus. So what that means is that he's teaching concepts that the kids don't know. It's, they, they don't know. And so he has to begin with a lecture element. So what we call the didactic element of, of teaching. So he's going to lecture to give a concept, but then as, but so what he does is he toggles back and forth. He goes, he goes lecture and then he goes discussion and collaboration. And it's so, it, it's just effortless the way that he goes back and forth and the way that he turns a, a calculus class into this collaborative enterprise. It's one of the most amazing things that you've ever seen. Now, the other part of it is his mindset. So his mindset is that he, and this is what he said to me, he said, Tim, I suspend judgment on every student because here's what I've learned. I've been doing this long enough to understand that some of my students, they assimilate faster than others. They learn faster than others. But my universal assumption is that every student can learn calculus, every single student. And he said, I've seen academic miracle after academic miracle. I have had students that have failed every test. And then they go take the national AP calculus exam and they pass the exam. Hmm. He said, I can tell you over and over again. And so what happens is learning is the emotional and the rational interwoven. So when humans learn, it's not this dry, cold, mechanistic process. We are humans. The emotions are interwoven with the intellect. And so you have to, you have to teach both. And so he, you have to create, you have to disassociate mistakes from failure. You have to separate those two. So what, what Mr. Smith does in his calculus room is that he says, look, you will make mistakes. As a matter of fact, mistakes are the way forward. But what you have to understand is that mistakes do not indicate or reflect failure. They are two different things. Mm. So we have to pull mistakes and failure apart so that there is no emotional hit when you make mistakes. Does that make sense? you you don't feel bad about making mistakes. Correct. So emotionally, he creates an environment where the kids are making mistakes all the time, but their interpretation of mistakes is very different. They see it as the way forward. It's not a stigma. There's no social embarrassment. There's no blow to confidence when you make mistakes. It's the way forward. So when that becomes the norm, when that becomes the understanding, when the students accept that emotionally, then they behave very differently. So they develop much more resilience and tenacity and grit in the learning process. So it's incredible to watch. Yeah. Interesting. So, But back to your point, back to your point, you can't do that if it's the sage on the stage using a lecture style. There's no way that's going to happen. So you at least have to toggle back and forth. And you have to understand the strengths and the weaknesses of the didactic with the collaborative. So interesting. I, I think, gosh, it, <laughs> the separate the failure from 
the mistake. And, and I think, yeah. well, we can actually, uh, I feel like, especially with millennials, they, they have a really hard time doing that. Um, yeah. Well, let, let me give you another example. So this one's in the book too. I was dumbfounded by this. Every 26 seconds, a high school student in America drops out every whoa. 26 seconds. Why is that happening? Is it, are we saying that these students don't have the mental and the intellectual bandwidth to do the work? That's nonsense. With the exception of those that have legitimate learning disabilities, these students can do the work. Mm -hmm. They absolutely can do the work. Even if, even if they're slow learners, they can't do the work. What's happened is they, so the, the parents and the schools quit the students before the students quit themselves. So they, the, the students lose confidence. They lose hope little by little, and eventually they call it quits. That is absolutely tragic every 26 seconds. That's so interesting. And that is, it is not necessary. It's just not necessary. It doesn't need to happen. No. And so what's happening is they don't have the learner safety that they need to flourish in the learning environment. That's what they need. They need learner safety. And if they, if they had learner safety, then they'll go forward. They will gain confidence. See, here's the irony. Can you gain confidence as you're making mistakes? Yes, mm -hmm. you can. But that's not happening to them. And so they eventually drop out. And so I, I say this in the book. The real, the true definition of devastation is when no one cares when you fail. Mm. They don't care. Interesting. No one cares. That's devastation. Yeah. It, yeah. Because no one cares. And you dropped out of and you dropped out of school and no one cares. That's devastation. Yeah. And that goes back to the whole uh, if no one cares, you're not part of a group. You don't have that inclusion. You, you got it. You don't, you don't have that safety. You, you don't have that. That's why, you know, so say what you want about religions as a whole. Religious communities are incredibly useful. Otherwise, we would not have evolved as humans to have religious communities. They, they, that's very true. Or, or, or social clubs or, you know, uh, uh, professional organizations. Why do we create all these different, uh, groups to, to belong to because we want that safety net. We want that social fabric behind us to push us in the right direction, to have something to lean on. Um, when we are, when we do come across that crossroad where it's like, okay, is this going to be a mistake or is this going to be a failure? That's really true. And so, you know, what that makes me think of Yavitsa is in organizations, we talk about diversity and inclusion, mm -hmm. right? It should be inclusion They're and very diversity. Different things. Yeah, they're very different things. Diversity is compositional. Inclusion is behavioral. They're very, very different things. So we like to congratulate ourselves because we have made great strides in creating a diverse, you know, diverse workforces in many organizations. And that's wonderful. And that is to be applauded. But it doesn't mean that you have an inclusive work environment. Mm -hmm. That's a very different thing. And so that's really what we've got to work on. And what, one of the points that I make, as I dug into the research, I came to this conclusion. Inclusion safety, stage one, is a moral imperative. There, there are no grounds to, art, to, to, to be able to say, no, I don't need to include him or her. The only exception is if they present you with harm. Mm -hmm. 
That's that is the only basis on which you can justify not including someone. Now, the hard thing, now here's the interesting thing. We have run our societies for millennia based on theories of superiority. We're better than you. Mm -hmm. we, and it goes back to Aristotle and all of the power theorists from, from hundreds and even thousands of years ago, where we justify superiority or some brand of supremacy in some way. We have run all of our societies based on different theories of superiority, and they're all rubbish. Well, it, they're all rubbish. The entire American ethos is based on the concept of of American exceptionalism. Well, that's true. Yeah. So, so it's we've we've created entire societies around it. Well, all societies are based on some theory of superiority, yeah. or at least they have those theories embedded into those societies. That's how we. We stratify society, and that's how we create um, different, you, you know, diff a hierarchy, mm -hmm. a different social hierarchy. Well, I'll give you an example. One of the examples that I use in the book that I think is kind of funny is I have two cars. Mm -hmm. So one is I have a very old Chevy Suburban. It has 300 and it's got about 315,000 miles on it. It's got a resale value of about $400. <laughs> If I take that thing to be serviced, and it's all rusted out, if I take that thing to be serviced, the attendant, because I've done this, this is, this is kind of my informal social A-B testing. So if I take it to be serviced, the attendant will look at me and judge me based on the car that I am driving yep. and, will, and, and, and will be um, not as polite. And then if I take my black sports sedan to be serviced, that same attendant will be very solicitous of me and attend, to, and attend to me with great responsiveness because of the vehicle in which I sit. We are so wired mm -hmm. to pay attention to these kinds of artifacts that are indications of social status. It's pretty incredible. And yet it's nonsense. So interesting. It's, I mean, Dr. Clark, we could literally have a conversation for hours on this because there, there's just so many different um, examples in society. But, but I would say, okay, first of all, plug, read the book when it comes out, guys. I'll have a link in the, in the show notes for the pre-order. Um, but for the sake of the interview, just give us a, a brief breakdown of what individually we can do to better society knowing the knowledge that's in the book that, that you're trying to you know, expand upon. Sure. Well, I think, I think we have to, so what I, what I say in the beginning of the book and it's, um, it's, it's kind of a call to action, I would say. So the call to action is that we all need to crack ourselves open and take a look inside. And we need to ask ourselves some pretty fundamental questions about uh, our beliefs and the way that we treat others mm -hmm. in society. And so let me give you some, maybe some fundamental questions that, that, that I raise in the book. So one would be, do you truly believe that all men, and, and you can tell where this comes from, that all men and women are created equal? And do you accept others 
and welcome them into your society simply because they possess flesh and blood, even if their values are different from your own. Do you? That's a, that's a, that, that is a fundamental question. Mm -hmm. Here's another one. Without bias or discrimination, do you encourage others to learn and grow? And do you support them in that process, even when they lack confidence or make mistakes? So, of course, that question corresponds to learner safety. Mm -hmm. Here's another one. Here's contributor safety. Do you grant others maximum autonomy to contribute in their own way as they demonstrate their ability to deliver results? Or, do you, do, or does your ego get in the way and do you micromanage them, right? Yeah. So that's a, that's a third question that corresponds to contributor safety. Here's the last one. Do you consistently invite others to challenge the status quo in order to make things better? And are you personally prepared to be wrong based on your humility and your learning mindset? Mm. Those are fundamental questions that I raise in the preface of the book. And, and I basically say, look, crack yourself open and take a look inside That is, and ask yourself these very fundamental questions. That is awesome. I love, I love the call to action. And those are good, those are good, I mean, good questions. Um, so we, we've, we're running up on time, so I, I need to wrap up the interview. And the, the one question I always ask at the end of each interview, if you could go back to, so pre Dr. Clark, let's say 18 year old. Tim, wide-eyed, <laughs> wide-eyed, bushy-tailed. If there's yeah. if there's one thing you could go back in time and tell your 18-year-old self, knowing all that you know and knowing all that you know about yourself, what is one thing you would go back and tell yourself at 18? I would tell myself that you have everything that you need to be confident and secure and that those things, that your, your confidence and your sense of self-regard are not based on what you know and what skills you have and what prowess you may have at that point. Be confident in who you are now and you'll be so much happier as you interact with people. And then number two, I would say, search yourself for any bias or prejudice that you that you have picked up in your socialization. See if you can identify it. Some of it's in plain sight. Some of it's a little bit more hidden. Mm -hmm. And strip yourself of all of that. We all pick up bias and prejudice along the way. There's not a human being without some trace elements of bias and prejudice mm -hmm. and discriminatory behavior. So do some do 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 some careful reflection about that and strip yourself of that. It, I, I think I had an advantage in that, in that way though, because when I was a child, I grew up in uh, my early years in Durango, Colorado, among the Navajo. Mm. My dad was a teacher among the Navajo tribe and we were not Navajo. We didn't speak Navajo and the cultural differences were very significant, but I will tell you this, they embraced us. They invited us into their society in a remarkable way that I perceived very strongly as a child. And that, that, that had a big impact on me. And, and, and so I realized that in spite of our demographic and psychographic differences, 
we are part of the same human family. And I think that is more important than any of our differences. Wow. That was awesome. I love that. I could have a whole podcast on your upbringing in, in the Navajo Nation now. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I think that'd be fascinating. Uh, well, Dr. Clark, I, I'm glad you came on. I, I love the interview. I thought it was fantastic. I'll make sure to have all your information in the in the show notes. And I think your book comes out in March, but I'll, I'll go ahead and put the link for the pre-order in there as well. Uh, is there any anything else that you'd like to share with with the listeners, how they can get maybe a hold of you or, or websites or any other projects you've done? Just give a give a brief sales pitch. Oh, sure. Yeah. If anyone wants to reach out. So it's leaderfactor.com. And, you, you know, you can always hit our website and we're happy to respond to any inquiries and uh, really appreciate the opportunity of it. So to be on your on your podcast, really enjoy the conversation. Wonderful. Well, likewise. And, and that's, you know, that's the whole point of this and um, impacting folks in a positive manner is, is always has always been the missions from day one. So for everybody listening, you know, the spiel millennial manhood dot net um, millennial manhood CIP at gmail dot com always open to uh, feedback, both positive and negative. Only caveat, if you're going to complain, don't just complain. You got to offer a solution. It has to be constructive criticism. Um, Outside of that, we will talk to you guys soon.